0: If you've got a Bible and you'd like to be turning to Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter five. My um, my four-year-old son has just taken uh, started taking to, to praying for me, which is great. Um, before I speak, and uh, last week it was the Alpha course uh, beginning, and uh, as I was putting him to bed, I said, uh, w- "Do you want to pray for me?" because the Alpha course is starting, um, and I'm speaking tonight on it. And so he said, yeah. And he, he earnestly prayed. He said, um, Dear Lord Jesus, I um, pray that Daddy's talk would be better. And, I'm think, and often we pray for people to be healed and things like that, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, maybe I've got a bit confused. So I said, Better than what? And he said, Better than your other talks. LAUGHTER <laughs> So, he did pray it again for me this morning because I laughed. He he thought, oh, that's funny. I'll pray that every time. So, that's going to be his constant prayer for me, which isn't a bad prayer to be praying (laughs) for, to be honest, is it? Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read from verse 13. Um, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Um, for the last several months, we've been looking at, in Matthew chapter 5, at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus giving this um, this, this kind of talk, this sermon, uh, talked to the people who gathered, mainly his disciples, although towards the end other people uh, did st- seemingly start to gather to him. But this, this talk was mainly to those people who were following him, his disciples, those who believed in him. And uh, we've looked at all the Beatitudes over the last few months, these blessed hours, And today we come to this uh, new section, really, um, about Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. We've been seeing that... Um, Who we are as Christians is not just an internal thing or a private thing, but something that affects the world in which we live. Jesus began in the Beatitudes by looking at who we were. So what attitudes we have, whether we're poor in spirit, whether we're mournful, whether we're meek. The fact that uh, we're all of those things if we follow him or he's increasingly making us those things. Um, And he's moved on in the Beatitudes to who we are in relations to other people as well, so that we are merciful. He sees that we are peacemakers. Um, And then actually we, at the end, saw something of the response of many people in the world to those of us who follow Christ, um, persecution and opposition. So that's where we've got up to. And Jesus is now talking about two things. He's talking about as being um, salt and light. And he uses these these two things, these two simple things that everyone would have known about as analogies, as an illustration of who we are and how we function in the world. We're going to briefly look at each of those two and then look at something which uh, kind of overarches both of them um, at the end. So he starts off by saying, you are the salt of the earth. People often use that expression, don't they, even today? You're the salt of the earth. I guess what they're meaning when, when they say someone is the salt of the earth is that they're a really good person. You know, they're, they're, they're good to be around, they're very kind. They're talking about their, their morals, really, how, how good a person they are. But Jesus wasn't talking about that, particularly. He wasn't talking about morality. He's talking about our function in society, how we work in society. As we're out in community, as we're out in the world, as we're out in our workplaces, and uh, in, our, in our streets, and in our towns, and in our communities. Um, we can look at many qualities of salt, and many people have preached messages on this verse, you are the salt of the earth, and, and tried to apply different things to what Jesus is meaning, such as, you know, the fact that salt gives flavor to things, and people say, oh, you know, as, as Christians, we give flavor to the world, um, or salt makes uh, us thirsty, um, and so we can say, oh, we, um, we make people uh, as Christians, we make people thirsty for God. I mean, there's a number of things, and, and Jesus may have had some of those things in mind. But I guess the main thing in those days that Jesus would have had in mind, and the people would have had in mind as they heard it, um, would have been the use for salt as a preservative. Um, these were the days before fridge freezers. So if you'd bought some meat, if you'd got some meat, you couldn't just there. Uh, get your, your big American-style fridge and put it in there and it would last a few days. You didn't, you didn't get your little used-by uh, dates on, on, your, on your packs of meat that come from Tesco's. Um, it was not like that at all. You had meat and you had to find some way of stopping it from going rotten because in a very hot society, um, meat would just go rotten very, very quickly. And the only way really to stop meat going rotten was to rub salt into it It had a preserving quality. That was what salt was mainly used for, to stop the meat decaying. And so what Jesus is saying about salt and about us is that as we live lives in him, as peacemakers and as those who are merciful and as those who are pure in heart, we're actually slowing down the decay in society. It's actually amazing how fast meat does decay when it doesn't have any preservative at all on it i watched a tv program recently about it was about e numbers i think and they and they took this piece of meat and they and they compared how uh, fast meat decayed when it had got preservative or salt in it and how fast it decayed when it was just left to itself and it was incredibly quickly that this meat went rotten we may think that we are not having much effect on society. We may look out in society these days and just say, "Oh, there's so much that is rotten about it." We can see uh, people living lives which are, are far away from God. We can see them engaging in some in activities that you just think that is just that is just so um, far from what the heart of God is for for their lives, for our lives. Society is so far from what. We're, we're believing and hoping it, it could be and that what God intended it to be. And we think, how, how much difference are we making? How can we make a difference in this? But I would say, in the same way that we would be amazed at how fast some meat, which hasn't been treated with preservative, rots, we would be amazed at how quickly society would rot and decay if we weren't in it as Christians. If we weren't in it, as people who were being salt in, that, in our society, in our world. Um, unbelievers, people who don't know God, they often talk about um, ideas of heaven and hell. And uh, they say, well, hell, you know, it doesn't, doesn't sound too bad, really. What's so bad about hell? Um, but hell is a place with an absence of God. In fact, an absence of anything good in it at all. So a place where there is no salt, there's no light, it's awful. And no wonder there is a wailing and a gnashing of teeth. We kind of think, oh, it's, it's something like the world today without, without God, without Christians. Okay, well, that's all right, isn't it? These things are okay. We quite enjoy doing them. But actually, the truth is when we've got no uh, godliness in society at all, it's an awful place to be. And we will be well aware that society is decaying, is rotting. You can, only, you can just compare um, times when, um, when things in society were a certain way. You can think, yeah, things are getting worse. Now, obviously, when God breaks in in revival power, then things get better again because light and salt has been brought in and God's power has been brought massively into the world. But generally throughout time, Society does decay. We started doing things as a church, um, activities. One of the things that I was involved in um, for a number of years and that many people in the church were involved in was was Kids Club. And what we did with Kids Club was we would um, run a club for children just out in the community, ones who don't come to church ones who maybe have never really heard about much about God, never been to Sunday school, never had that input at all. And so we would have a, a club where there's a lot of fun going on, a lot of games, but where we would also uh, teach them about God, teach them about um, things of, of God, and look to see God in, influence their lives and influence their families. And one of, the, um, one of the things that we were aware of was that many of these children who would come to Kids Club their families were just in a state of absolute despair and disarray. So they might have um, fathers who were absent or in prison many, many times. They might have families who, uh, where there was alcoholism or drug abuse readily going on or prostitution, um, where, where people would grow up and their older brothers and sisters would quickly go and follow the ways of their mother and father. So just following the same pattern. Um, and get involved in some of these things. And what we wanted to do was say, look, here's something which is going to be acting as salt. We as, as, as a group of people from the church, community from the church, we want to get involved in these people's lives. We want to get involved in society. We want to bring the truth of God. But we want to stop the decay. We want to see these young men and women, young children being preserved so that they didn't go the same way as their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. We wanted to see societies and communities um, where the decline into sin, hopelessness and despair was slowed down. Now, we may not be running those activities anymore, but in fact, we're still there as a church in those communities. That's the area where we've started a congregation up in the north of the city, um, because we're there now as a church and we're still wanting to see that same decline in society be arrested. We want to we be salt in that society, in that community. All across the city, in this community, wherever we live, in Sheffield, we are salt. And we're stopping decay. We're stopping the deterioration of, uh, of society. But there's a warning here that Jesus gives, isn't there? Because he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled before men. And uh, there's a warning there that as we are fighting decay, as we are going in as the church and being um, bringing sort of a purity and a bringing that preserving quality, we mustn't deteriorate ourselves. We must be the ones who are influencing society, not the other way around. We mustn't allow society to influence us. Jesus is saying, if you lose your saltiness, it's no longer good for anything. Now, some people say, well, how can salt lose its saltiness? You can't, if you get salt, you can't take that saltiness out of it. And to some extent, that's true. But salt can be contaminated, It can be adulterated. It can be mixed in with other things, for example, earth or sand. And if it's mixed in with those things, it can't be used anymore as a preservative. You've got to just put salt in its pure form on meat to keep it preserved. You can't just say, "Oh, there's a bit of salt, you know, in this." Go down the beach and this. Have a taste of that. That's a bit salty. This this sand. Let's let's rub some sand into our meat to try and keep it fresh and preserved. That's not going to work because it's got to be pure. And uh, that's what Jesus was talking about. He's saying, don't allow your saltiness to be contaminated by the world. Don't lose your distinctiveness. Don't compromise and just accept the culture around you. Take on board um, the things that are there. Otherwise, we will lose our saltiness. I guess the... uh, The closest to explaining something of this is in 1 John chapter 2. Um, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. It's a similar kind of thing to the warnings that Jesus is is giving here, isn't he? Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your distinctiveness. Don't fall in love with the world. Jesus says, doesn't he, you can't love two masters. You can't love God and love money, he he chooses. But the same applies to anything. You can't love God and love the world. We are in the world. We are there because Jesus is wanting us to be that salt and light in society, but not to be corrupted by society, not to be transformed by them. We're to go in purity. And it's a danger for all of us, which is why Jesus stresses it. It's why Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. It could happen. Don't do it salt of the earth. He also says, you are the light of the world. And again, this is something that we may need to just get into the mindset of the people who were hearing this for the first time. Because we can, we can think about light, but really, our society is full of light, even when it's dark. You know, If you walk out into the streets when it's dark, certainly in Sheffield, You've got street lights on all over the place. You've got light, electric lighting in houses and in windows. You've got lights on in the city centre. You've got all sorts going on. It's, there's darkness in, in terms of... It's, it's night, but it's not dark, is it? There's plenty of uh, light there. But from the people who were hearing this for the first time, maybe in very rural communities, they lived in a society when it was really, really Dark. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere totally dark, where it's absolutely dark, where you've got no light from any nearby cities at all. Um, I went to one place that was like that, uh, where we travelled from in Bolivia. I was in Bolivia and we travelled about 100, 150 miles from the nearest city. And when it got dark, it was absolutely dark. There was no electrical lighting, no lighting of any kind for miles and miles around. And if you put your hand there in front of your face, there was no way that you could see that. Now, you can't imagine that in this society, because when it's dark, you can, oh yeah, I can see that. Even out in the countryside, because what happens is the light from uh, Sheffield, if you're out in the Peak District, the light from Sheffield kind of reflects, there's a lot of phosphorus, isn't there? kind of reflects off the clouds, and, y- and you have some light out in the countryside but when it's absolutely dark, when there's none of that reflected light, it is pitch black. And you can see how that darkness is so terrifying. When there's absolute darkness, nothing else. You can see why it's a symbol of all that is evil. You know, we, qu- we can think, people can think, oh, we quite like it when it's dark. They can have a lot of fun when it's dark. Um, and our society kind of Toys and plays with things of the dark, um, with evil, then it becomes entertainment. Things that are, uh, the Bible calls evil, we can make into entertainment. Um, whether it's horror films or whether it's things like Halloween or books about witchcraft and wizardry and the occult, all sorts of different things that you can imagine that are kind of evil in their root. They're not. They're not from God. And we can think, oh, it's entertainment, it's fun, oh, it's okay, it's not too bad. Well, it doesn't seem too bad because it's like being in darkness when it's not absolutely pitch black. You go, I can see a bit, that's all right. I don't know what people are worried about being, saying they're scared of the dark, fearful of the dark, what's that about? But when you are in absolute darkness, then that's scary, that's something fearsome. And in hell, again, there is no light. There's no light of the world. There's no Christians. There's no God. It's absolute darkness. And it's fearsome. And darkness, says Jesus, is relieved by a city on a hill. He says, A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And you might think, well, why is Jesus talking about a city? He's talking about light, and he says, okay, because you, you, you imagine that, and you think, oh, there's a hill, and there's a city on it. Okay, well, there's yeah, there's a city. I see the city. I don't, I don't understand what that's going to do with light. But if you understand what I've just been saying about the light from a city, say, Sheffield, reflecting back into the darkness of the clouds, that's the kind of thing that Jesus was talking about. He's saying, as Christians, we are a light. We are a city on a hill. It might not be absolute dazzling brightness, sunshine, but there's a light that is relieving the darkness. Again, he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl or snuff it out. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. When you're in that absolute darkness, when I was in Bolivia, we had a meeting with some people in this community. These just th- just these huts uh, and and shacks that were built out in the middle of in the middle of nowhere. It seemed to me uh, this little community village with absolutely no light. And someone came and it was and it was it was dark. And someone came to this meeting and they had a lamp. And we had one light. It was kind of one candle light in this lamp, and that shone for the whole meeting. And it relieved the darkness. It was like we could see. We could just about make out the people we were talking to. could just about make out the food that they'd given me to eat. I was actually quite relieved. I couldn't make it out too much. Because I've no idea what it was. Um, (laughs) Nothing I'd ever tasted before. However, that's irrelevant. Um, (laughs) You could just about... But the thought of saying, oh, just put that light out. What? That'd be mad. Why would you want to put that light out? That's the only thing that is helping us see. And Jesus says, we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Don't. It's madness to light it and then snuff it out. And say, oh, well, let's hide that. Let's not, let's not shine it anymore. Because there's a darkness out there. There's a dark world that God is sending us out into to be his light. He explains that it's our light that is shining. But what is that light? Is that light us talking to people about Jesus? Is that light us saying, hey, do you want to know about, about God? Well, of course, there's a place for talking about God. There's, a, there's very much a place for preaching uh, the gospel. But that isn't actually what Jesus is talking about here because he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What he's talking about here is good deeds. He's saying people will see the things that you do. So we're called to be visible, not to draw attention to ourselves and say, hey, aren't we great, but to draw attention to us, to the light of the world himself, Jesus. Jesus called himself the light of the world, didn't he? In John chapter 8 and verse 12 was one place where he said that. John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so as we are out in the world, we're drawing attention to Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. We'll look at that more a little bit later. But the way that we do it is by our good deeds, is by what we do Interestingly, um, Paul says a similar thing in Philippians chapter 2. He's talking about stars. Uh, And uh, in chapter 2 and verse 14 of Philippians, he says, "...do everything without complaining or arguing, so you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ." That I didn't run or labor for nothing. Stars in the universe, we shine like stars in the universe. Actually, at one point, the, the clouds parted in Bolivia and the stars came out, and I have never seen such stars because there was no reflected light and there was just these stars. And it was amazing. I stared at them for about half an hour because I thought, I'm, never, I'm probably never going to see this again quite like this. And Jesus is saying, Paul's saying, we shine like stars. In the universe, holding out the word of life to a depraved and crooked generation. But how does that passage start? What's the context for it? Verse 14, look carefully do everything without complaining or arguing, so you may be complainless and pure, children of God without thought. He's starting off with something very simple do everything without complaining or arguing. He's talking about how we live our lives. The things that we do. That people may look at us and say, Oh, there are people who do things without complaining or arguing. That's unusual, isn't it? It is unusual in society. People complain and argue about all sorts of things. What Jesus is talking about and what Paul is talking about here as we are the light of the world, is he's talking about us living our lives in very different ways to other people. For example being diligent in our work instead of using every opportunity to slack off our work. I remember um, years ago getting a job in Lambeth Council in the holidays, the university holidays. And uh, I think it was to do with housing benefit. And this whole department processing housing benefit claims. And I'm not exaggerating at all. I was there one week and I didn't see anyone else in the office do any work The whole week. They would sit, read newspapers, play cards, chat. Their boss was on holiday for the week. This whole department's boss was on holiday for the week. And so they just did what they felt like. And I I was there working and I was processing these claims. I was thinking, oh man, this is... I am reading all these letters of people saying, we're absolutely desperate. We, you know, we, we applied for benefit months ago. We've heard nothing. Our landlords threatening to throw us out. You know, please, can you help us? There's these guys and, and women sitting there playing cards. I think, yeah, I need to do something about this. So I'm processing these times. People, people said to me, stop working so hard. Can you stop work? Can you slow down? So she's showing us up. They didn't like it. I mean, that was where the opposition comes. That was where the, the persecution can come from. Actually, what they ended up doing was sabotaging all the work that I'd done. So all the work I'd done in one day and sorted these, these letters out, that someone just got them all, mixed them all together and gave me the same ones back again the next day because I read the same letters. Because people, people don't want to work. People want to take the easy option. But God says, no, how you are shines a light. Being diligent in your work, working hard, not skipping hours, making sure that you earn the money. ...that you're being paid and not just taking opportunities where they come from. Or, for example, being fair in sports. Um, when you're playing a sport. You know, if, you, if you've got a referee in a game... ...and you... Uh, ...for example, I play squash. Um, there's sometimes in squash where you have a referee... ...and you can hit the ball... ...and because it's quite a fast game... ...and, uh, and you, you've, the referee's got his back to you... ...sometimes you can hit the ball... ...and um, the ball bounces twice... Um, you're only supposed to bounce once before you hit it. And uh, obviously that's, a, that's, that's the other person's point if that happens. But sometimes the referee doesn't see it. Sometimes you have to decide, am I going to call this myself if you're in the middle of a game? And so what do we do as Christians? Do we think, oh, referee's not seen it, let's take the point? Or do we say, actually, no, I fouled that shot, that's the other guy's point? Questions that come up all the time. Or how we talk is how we talk like other people talk, gossiping, backbiting? Or is it different? Is it showing light? Is it seasoned with salt? Maybe not engaging in coarse joking, but using humor in a good way? Or how are we with other people, maybe of the opposite sex? Do we flirt with them like other people might? Or are we genuinely kind and loving towards people without straying over that line? Or what about when we're out with people? Do we get drunk or do we stay sober? Questions, because this is down to what Paul is talking about and this is what Jesus is talking about. How you are with people, they may see your good deeds. And again, there's the danger that we can lose our saltiness. There's the danger that we can get corrupted by the world. And as light, we can, we can compromise. We can think, oh, we, we are the light of the world, but actually there's a fear there that we're not sure how people are going to react to us. Actually, I can see working in this office, and I'm working hard, and people aren't liking it. Well, maybe I'm just going to compromise. Maybe I'm going to hide my light. Maybe I'm going to not be like that. Maybe I'll be like them. And just get by. And, and, and just snuff that light out so that there's just darkness in that office questions that we have, temptations that come to all of us. Jesus is saying, don't do that. You can't hide a city on a hill. It's foolishness to put a bowl over some light. Don't do it. Salt and light, the two things that Jesus says we are as we follow him, the things that we are in society. But the, the final thing that I want to point out today that kind of overarches both of those things is that Jesus isn't talking about us here as individual Christians. Because it's very easy to read that, isn't it? We can read a passage like this and think, you are the salt of the earth, and think Jesus is talking about you, singular, are the salt of the earth, individually. So you think, right, me, in my workplace or wherever I go, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. Now, to some extent, obviously, as a Christian, we do carry God's light with us. We will have an effect on people. But the word, the Greek word here translated you, is plural. It's not singular. Jesus was talking to a group of people, his followers. And actually, to apply this now, he's talking to us together, the church. He's saying, You, the church, are the light of the world. As we've already seen in, in John chapter 8, Jesus called himself the light of the world, himself, one person. The man, God, Jesus, the light of the world. In chapter 9 of John's Gospel as well, he says a similar thing. He says, um, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Which begs the question, Jesus, what about when you're not in the world? Who's the light of the world then? And of course, we've seen the answer already that Jesus himself has given. The light of the world then, when Jesus is not in the world, when he's back ascend, risen from the dead, ascended in heaven as he is now, is that the church, corporately, is the light of the world. It's us. It's a people. It's not individuals. If we go back to the Old Testament, we actually see that this theme goes right back to the Old Testament. Um... And the images of salt and light go back to the Old Testament as well, uh, and were used to describe God's people, Israel, his covenant people. Because God's always wanted to work through a people. He called a group of people, Abraham, he said, started with Abraham, he says, You're going to be a great nation. And that people became Israel, God's chosen people. And he makes a covenant with them, and which is described or referred to in two Chronicles thirteen, which refers to in other places as well. But 2 Chronicles 13 and verse 5 says, um, Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? So there's that reference there to salt, what that... It's it's difficult to know exactly what that means, what a covenant of salt is. But it's a covenant, obviously, that is going to go on forever. It's an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting promise between God and his people. A promise that cannot be broken. And he equally called his people to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 60, we see that. Um, From the first verse, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Israel was to be a light to the nations. To draw the nations to them. To shine a light out into the world. But the tragedy is that instead of drawing the nations to the light of Israel, God's people were drawn into the ways of the nations. The very thing that Jesus is warning his believers, his followers about here. You just read the Old Testament. They got corrupted by the ways of the world. They started worshipping the idols that were in their communities. And their distinctiveness went. Their saltiness went. The light that they had was snuffed out. And they didn't fulfil... The purposes that they had. So what happened was that God's light was smothered under this cloak of disobedience. We've been hearing from Dan the other the other week, haven't we? In the last few weeks, that uh, God even used uh, other oppressive nations to try and turn them back to Him, and the prophets would try and remind God's people who they were, and that they were this light of the nations, that they were um, to be this. They had this covenant of salt. Eventually, Isaiah sees that God will raise up a servant who will be the light to the nations and that God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And in Isaiah 49, he's talking about this servant. Um, And in verse uh, 6, he says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That prophecy there is going out, that he sees the someone else who God is raising up to be a servant, to be God's servant, who goes on and suffers. We read about it in Isaiah 53, who's going to be a light for the Gentiles, to bring Salvation to the ends of the earth. And Matthew's Gospel makes it clear who that person is right at the start. The very first verse of Matthew's Gospel, it says a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. What, why is he mentioning Abraham in this? He's mentioning Abraham because Abraham is the one who was, uh, who symbolizes, who started the nation of Israel, who was gonna be that light to the Gentiles, to the nations. David, son of David, the one who God established with him, a covenant of salt. Matthew's making it very, very clear who this Jesus is. He is going to be that servant. He is going to be the one to bring the light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And Matthew's gospel ends in chapter 28, doesn't it? With Jesus sending out his disciples to the nations to bless them through the mission of the church. To be that light. So now it's no longer Jerusalem, which is that flame to which the moths are going to gather, to which the nations will come, the light to which it will come. The light to which other nations will come, to which people will come now, is the church. Not a geographical nation, but a mobile community, a people, us, who go out into the world showing God's light to the world, being salt and light in the world. So the church is Jesus' new salt community. The church is God's new light to the world. It's not an, so it's, once again we see here that the church isn't an optional thing. It's not just a club where we might come on a Sunday morning or gather in our core groups midweek or on a Friday evening. The church is at the very heart of God's purposes. We are this people who will model what it means to live under God's rule. We are a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God. Showing the world what it means to be truly human. Jesus said in John chapter 13 and and verse 35. He said, verse 34 says, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What was it that he was saying that people will see? What is it that is the light that people will see? What is it that's going to be distinctive about us? It's about us loving one another. It's not about who we are individually in our walk with God. Because people will see that and they'll go, oh, that's that's nice. Oh, you're a Christian. Well, yeah, it seems to make you happy. You you seem to be a nice person, yeah. But actually, when they see the church, when they see God's people, God's community, they'll say, there's something different about this, because they're loving one another. Actually, there's relationships going on here. There's things which we can't do. It's too difficult for us to do this with people. We, do, we wouldn't actually get on with people in our street, in our society. How, how do they do it? They love one another. That's what Jesus said was going to be the sign. And that can only be done in community. And it can only be done in community where people see us as well. It can't just be done in closed doors community. Because otherwise, no one's going to know that we're Jesus' disciples because no one's going to see us. They've got to see us loving one another. Alistair was saying earlier, wasn't he, that we're part of this community that loves one another. It's already come out in our worship time. The good deeds that people see are uh, in a large part the deeds that we have towards each other. And it's a big challenge for us. It's a huge challenge in a society which is increasingly individualistic because we, we can easily get tempted to live out our Christian lives in an individualistic society and we live them out in an individualistic way. It's just us and God, and that's the main thing. And if church fits in occasionally, if nothing else is in the way, we might come to a meeting. But in terms of community, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit much. That's a bit scary. That's a bit, you know, a bit full-on really, isn't it? We'll pull away from that. We don't want that. Jesus is saying, no, you are a community of believers. You're the body of Christ, he described it in another way. It's a corporate thing. Tim Chester's in his provocative book, Total Church, says, church that is just a discrete set of responsibilities juggled with other sets of responsibilities can never carry the weight of Jesus' mandate. What he's saying is, if, if, there's, if we've got some responsibilities to do with church, which are just separate from everything else, all the other responsibilities we have, family responsibilities, work responsibilities, whatever it might be, responsibilities to the, to the team that we're part of, the sports team. And if church is just another one of those things, then it's never going to be what Jesus wanted it to be. It's never going to be able to fulfill what Jesus here, in saying that we are salt and light, is about. We're not going to be able to do it. He says only life that is infused and transformed by a communal identity can be lived before men. We've got to be transformed as a community. This is a huge challenge for us as a church, as churches in our society. It's a challenging statement to us. How do we do that? How do we live our lives out as the church? It's not about having more meetings, in case you're worried that that's the answer. It's not about having more meetings. It's about who we are together. In fact, as a church, um, we're committed to gathering in increasing numbers of congregations across the city, aren't we? We've already got two congregations. We're hoping to start other congregations soonish, you know, to be in different areas of the city. We're already meeting in 15 different core groups, communities of believers, mainly geographical, across the city. Um, and I think God's starting to stir us more and more in this. And he's going to provoke us and challenge us. And, and the answers and to how are we going to be salt and light? How, how are we salt and light in these communities? How are we visible as well, that people may see our good deeds towards each other and as loving our, each other? These are good questions to ask in our core groups, for example. In our congregations. Is this a congregation? Are we committed to reaching the people around us where we live. Okay, maybe people live in different areas, but we want congregations that are committed to being salt and light in those areas and living them out wherever we are. Yes, we will live and make some difference as individuals, but it's when the church is salt and light that a real difference is seen. And it's when we meet and welcome unbelievers into our gatherings as well. People who don't know about God. It's great to hear of different things that are happening. I know that there's groups uh, who have met, who are living in, I think the Greystones area have met, and just talked about, well, you know, how, how how can we live our lives out here in this Greystones area? How can we be salt and light? It's fantastic. I heard of another uh, core group. I think it was Alistair and Hannah's core group. Uh, just on, on Facebook this week, I just saw, or Twitter, you know, going down the pub as a group to, to do the pub quiz. But then, not just staying as a, oh, this is our little group here, we're going to stay close. But they were saying, you know, the best bit was talking to other people in the area, other people in the pub. Just being that group together. And people will see how we live our lives out together. How we relate to each other. How we talk to each other. They'll overhear the conversation. They'll overhear the humor. I think that's a bit different, isn't it? It's different to our conversation. It's different to our humor. Different examples of how we assault and light. It's this sort of thing that Jesus is meaning. Going out into the world as the church, not just expecting the world to come to us, you know. There's things that we can put on as a church and we can invite people to and we will still do that. But most of life isn't about the activities that we organize It's about life lived out as who we are, day by day, hour by hour. Brothers and sisters, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Let's not be like Israel and lose our saltiness or hide our light. Let's be committed to being a a church together, a community that is going out and showing Jesus to a dark and a rotting world, preserving society, bringing a light that people might see, have their sins exposed, come be drawn to the light. Yes, some will rebel. Some will persecute. We've looked at that. But some will be drawn to that light, like moths to a flame, like the nations were meant to with Israel. People will come to the church's light and be saved and found in him. Let's pray.